please stand with me for the reading of the word of God. Our passage this morning comes from Psalms 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked is advancing against me to devour me, it is my enemy and foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army beseech me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, only this do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent, and he will set me high upon a rock. When my head will be ex- then my head will be exalted above the enemies who, who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You will be my helper. Do not reject or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Good morning. The primary villains in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes are these imaginary monsters that live under Calvin's bed. The monsters, they vary in appearance, but nearly all of them have tentacles. Oftentimes they're seen as shadows on the wall. And they're always trying to get Calvin to get off his bed so they can devour him. And they have these very creative ways of doing this. In one comic strip, they, uh, the monsters make this sloshing sound to Calvin to try to get him to have to go to the bathroom and get up. That kind of works. He end, Calvin ends up, ends up just going out the window, though, and doesn't get off his bed. In another creative attempt, they try to get Hobbes, who's Calvin's stuffed tiger and best friend to push Calvin off the bed by bribing Hobbes with some salmon if he does it. Calvin is scared of the monsters, but he has these creative ways to fight back. He can call his parents in to check under the bed. He can break out a baseball bat to try to hit him on the the head, and even in one, he threatens to use a flamethrower. There's one thing that makes the monsters shrivel up. And that is light. In Psalm 27, the psalmist, David, has his own monsters that are under the bed, so to speak, and threatening to devour him. Uh, Some of the threats seem quite real. Some of them, if I'm honest, seem a bit imaginary uh, or at least exaggerated. Early on in the psalm, David talks about an army that is advancing to devour him. We have this language similar to Calvin and Hobbes. Though an army besiege me, though war break out against me. So David is 
imagining himself on a battlefield where on one side is an army that is ready to go to war against him, right? Not, the, not his people, not Israel, not his army, but him. Seems perhaps a bit exaggerated, but a terrifying prospect. Later on in the psalm, David moves from a battlefield to maybe what we would call an orphanage where he writes, though my father and mother forsake me. Now, I think this fear maybe hits us more at a visceral level. Like there's little more psychologically terrifying than the feeling of being abandoned. And to be abandoned by one's parents is probably the worst thing that could happen. Right? That is the one bond that is never supposed to break. So I don't know if this one is imagined or real, but I think we can understand why this would keep him up at night. And then he moves finally to a courtroom where David is under attack, this time not by an army, but by malicious accusations against him. So we've moved from uh, an attempt at physical assassination of David to a threat of character assassination. So I want you to see these monsters, real or imagined, lurking around David are quite terrifying. He's under physical threat. There's this army. He's under emotional threat. He fears he's been abandoned by his parents. He's under psychological threat. People are saying false things about him. And the question becomes, what do you do with those fears, real or imagined? Can anyone help? What if you had one request? I'll be honest, as a father... I often do not know what to do about monsters lurking under beds. I have struggled to understand the fear that these monsters elicit, and I've struggled to understand how to best counsel children to take on these monsters. My tactic over the years has been what I call the evidence-based approach to monsters under the bed. This approach relies on empirical data collected over time. So when my children come in, I ask them, how many monsters have you seen? Zero. How many times have you been attacked by a monster? Zero. Zero appearances by monsters, zero attacks in quite literally hundreds, if not thousands of nights sleeping. The evidence seems to me very clear. You're fine. It may not surprise your parents to know that this strategy has been a total failure. Turns out, fears, real or imagined, are fears. And I've come to realize that as you get older, these monsters tend to morph. They're still there, but they tend to change. They may not have tentacles. They may no longer hide under beds, but they keep us up at night. They take a life on of their own, and they can become crippling. Now, let's think about fear for a second. Fear is not an altogether bad thing. There's this In the most primitive part of our brain is the amygdala, which is about the size of a grape. And the amygdala is very important. It it signals danger. It's constantly scanning the environment for threats, for things that might harm us, for pain and injury. And the amygdala is a gift from our creator. We should pay attention to what the amygdala is telling us, right? If Apparently, if you remove an amygdala from a mouse, it will just amble near cats with no fear. Fear serves a purpose. I think we would all agree with that. The challenge is, and I think we would also agree with it, is our fear system is often out of whack. It's intended to protect us, and yet it is so sensitive to danger 
that rather than protecting us, our fear system actually does harm to us. And just as evidence-based strategies don't work well for monsters under the bed, I have discovered that they don't work well for our monsters today either. Let me give you two examples. Take, for example, the fear of being harmed by an intruder, someone breaking in your house and harming you. If you look at the evidence, this will not make you safer one bit. In fact, the odds are that that weapon in the house will more likely harm you or someone in your house than it will be to protect you from an intruder. And yet, we buy guns in record numbers. We're convinced that these guns will protect us. Let's take another fear, for example. A child being abducted by strangers. Just another last month, I think there was a child abducted. It hits the news cycle. We begin to fear. And yet, if you look at the evidence, it is exceedingly rare, outrageously rare, that your child will be abducted. And even less so that that child will be hurt. I, I read once recently that if you tell a person tallied up, say you wanted your child to be abducted, right? If you wanted to do that, you would have to probably place your child outside alone for about 750,000 hours to statistically get them abducted. And yet we are afraid to let our children walk 10 minutes to the park. The evidence doesn't compute. Some of our fears, if we're honest, are very much like David's fear of an army. They're not very based, they're not based on evidence. They're more imagined than real. And if not imagined, they are greatly exaggerated. And yet many of our fears are not. We may not be under attack by an army, but we know what it's like to have a threat on our physical health. We may not have been forsaken by our mother and father, but many of us have experienced abandonment. We've been abandoned by friends. We've been abandoned by family members. Some of us have even been abandoned by our spouses. Maybe we haven't had false accusations leveled against us in the court of law, untrue things said about us, but we have been misunderstood. Some of us have probably been wrongly accused of something. If we went around today to everyone here present and we were honest, I don't think we would have a hard time naming monsters that lurk under our beds and keep us up at night. We have fears. The question then becomes, what do you do with those fears? If they're real or they're imagined, where do you go when life seems like too much? If you were granted one wish in light of your fears, what would it be? Here's David's. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Probably one of the most beautiful lines in all the Psalter. If you're going to memorize one line in the Psalter, I would commend this one to you. David has taken us to some scary places in the psalm. He's taken us to a battlefield. He's taken us to an orphanage where he's been forsaken. He's taken us to a courtroom where he's being falsely accused. But right in the middle of this psalm is this kind of oasis. There's trouble on either side. There's trouble in the lead-up to the oasis, and there's going to be trouble that is going to follow after this oasis. But there's just one place that's very calm. Here, he's not being assaulted by an army. David actually finds himself exalted above his enemies. 
Here he's not in a courtroom having these nasty accusations leveled against him. He's in the temple gazing at beauty. Ugliness has been replaced with beauty. Now he's not being forsaken by his parents. He has the divine presence with him. It's as if David is kind of in the middle of the song, walked into a room and closed the door, and he's found himself in a completely different space. He's safe. Abandonment's been replaced by love, ugliness with beauty. And he asks for one thing. He wishes to be in the presence of the Lord. He wants to go to the temple. The temple is, for the Israelites, the hot spot for God. This is where God dwells on earth. So if there's anywhere you want to go to be in the presence of God, it is to the temple, because that's as close as David can get to God as possible, and that's where he wants to go. What does he want to do there? He wants to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. It's beautiful and extremely impractical. Because remember, when David, David's in this little room, he's in this little oasis, outside, before and after, are real-world problems. He gets one wish. You've got an army at war with you, David. How about some chariots? You've been abandoned by your parents. How about some adoptive parents? You're getting pummeled in courts. How about a better lawyer? Like, hanging out with God is great, but what about these real-world problems? Gazing at the beauty of God sounds lovely, but let's be realistic, David. You sure you want that to be your one wish? But here's what we need to see, why it's so important. David doesn't want something from God. He wants God. David doesn't want something from God. He wants God. In light of all the problems he has, he says, if I get one wish, if I get one thing, I want it to be this. I want to be in the presence of the God, and I want to gaze at the beauty of God. Think with me about how beauty works. Each of us, we have some diversity in our congregation, has a different understanding, I think, of beauty. For some of us, if we want to track down beauty, we're going to the Cleveland Museum of Art, and we're going to gaze at some of the beautiful art there. Others of us would prefer to go to the Severance Music Center in Cleveland and immerse ourselves in Beethoven's Symphony No. 3. Some of us would choose Cuyahoga Valley National Park to gaze at the beauty. Others of us would go to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and gaze at the beauty of the athleticism of some of the best basketball players on earth. We have different ideas of what is beautiful, whether it's art or music or nature or athletic ability. But here's what I want you to think about. Why do you look at that beauty? Why do you gaze at that painting? Why do you listen to that symphony? Why do you stare at those mountains? Are you trying to get something from them? No. You're gazing at them because it's beauty. Now, maybe at one time, let's think about this, in high school or maybe college, you might have had to take an art appreciation class or you might have had to take a music appreciation class. At that point, you're listening to the music or you're staring at the art because it's a means to an end. You're just trying to graduate. You can graduate and you go make some money or do whatever you want to do. But you're beyond that now. If you're immersing yourself in a symphony, if you're at the Cleveland Museum of Art and you're staring at a painting, there's no functional value to that. Now you're there to see beauty for beauty's sake. 
Here's what I want you to see. David, he wants to be in the presence of God, not to get something from God. He wants to be in the presence of God because he knows there's nothing better than God. He doesn't want to gaze at the beauty of God because he thinks that gazing at the beauty of God will somehow help him. He wants nothing more than the beauty of God. That's his one thing. That's his one request. And by asking for nothing except for God, what David is doing is he's reordering his whole life. He's reordering his desires. He's reordering his suffering, his trouble, and his fears. Because his one thing is God, everything else falls into place. And he can be confident. Does that mean David won't suffer? Absolutely not. He will leave this oasis and he will begin to suffer. Does that mean David's troubles will go away? Absolutely not. But he's confident. He has this unshakable trust in God. How is this possible? How is it in light of all the fears that David has, he can say, even then I'll be confident. Because his fears about his enemies that are at war with him, his insecurities about being abandoned as a child, his anxieties about false accusations, all those monsters have been put into place. He still sees the monsters, but now a light has been shown on all those monsters, and he sees them for what they are. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? No one. He's found the one thing that can deal with all those fears. Fear is a powerful, motivating force. If there's one thing I've noticed as a pastor is that we as Christians are very afraid If there's one thing I notice when I look at our political culture is that politicians sure know how to prey on our fears, don't they? You want to get someone to vote, just find out what they're afraid of and make them even more afraid. Tell them that you got the answer. We are fearful people. The question is not whether we will be fearful. It is what will we do with our fears? What will we do with those fears? Usually, hopefully, if you're in here today, we go to God with them. Because even if you don't have a regular prayer life, even if rarely you find yourself praying, you, when trouble, when fears hit you, you will go to God as you should. Your physical health is under threat. You cry out to God, heal me, God. Your job's under threat. You're about to lose your job. Help me, God. I'm about to lose my job. Your relationship, your marriage is in trouble. Help me, God. Help restore this relationship. That is good and right. Fear should drive us to God. We should go to God on our needs. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to bring God our needs. He's our Heavenly Father who cares about our needs. The challenge is, though, is that the only time we go to God? If the only time we find ourselves praying is when we need something for God, we should take that as a gentle sign in our hearts that our one thing is probably something other than God. That our heart still believes that happiness and peace and relief from our fears lies in something God can give us rather than God himself. If you, if I notice that Almost my entire prayer life is asking things from God, even good things, 
But there's no space to just rest with God, to gaze at the beauty of God. It may be a sign, a gentle sign in our hearts that says we're still seeking something other than God. We still have a different one thing. Remember, we've got to go back to David. What's his one thing? It's not to get something from God. It is God himself. That's his one thing, to be in the presence of God and to gaze at the beauty of God. It's really easy to miss the one thing. Jesus knows this. Here's a few stories in the Gospels. There's a guy that's wealthy. He's religious. He's kept all the commands. He is the, if anyone has it together, it's got to be this guy. He comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, you lack one thing. Martha, she's busy busting her butt preparing this multi-course meal for Jesus. She's worried. She's stressed. Mary's not helping her. Jesus says to her, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Only one. One thing. He then tells a story, a parable about a merchant who's looking for numerous pearls. He finds this one pearl, the pearl at great price. He sells everything to buy it. Because that merchant has found the one thing that matters, the thing of infinite worth. See, Jesus saw around him what we have today, people searching for lots of things, looking for lots of things to alleviate their needs, to alleviate their fears. And Jesus is constantly reminding us there's actually only one thing, and that's me. He is, he was, and he is the one thing. Jesus can give us nothing more than himself. And I will tell you, there is nothing more beautiful to gaze at than upon Jesus. The beauty of God is revealed in many ways. We can step outside and see the beauty of God through creation, absolutely. We can see it through art. We can see it through music. We can see it through athletics. But the beauty of God is most fully revealed through Jesus, through his character, his compassion, his courage, his integrity, his wisdom, his unselfishness, his life, his love, his death on the cross on our behalf. Jesus was and is beautiful. When you look at Jesus, do you see beauty? If not, that's okay. you got to keep looking, though. The one thing that we are to ask, the one thing that we are to seek, is not something from Jesus. It is Jesus, because Jesus can give us nothing more than himself. And when we do that, when we truly begin to want, as David wants, nothing more than the presence of God and to gaze at the beauty of God, everything in our life finds its proper place. It doesn't mean that we stop desiring other things or that our desires should go away, but all those desires will find their proper place. It doesn't mean that all our fears will go away, but all those fears will find their proper place. Let me tell you two stories that I think illustrate this about Thomas Aquinas, lived in the 1200s. Whatever you think about Thomas Aquinas, or you don't think about Thomas Aquinas, one of the most brilliant and influential theologians in church history. Two stories. First story about Aquinas goes like this. He was later on in his life, he heard this voice from Jesus call out to him, say, you have written well of me, Thomas. What rewards will you receive for your labor? And Aquinas reportedly responded, Lord, Nothing except you. You see what Aquinas was saying? He was saying what David's saying. What do I want? I want you. What reward do I want? I want you. 
There's nothing you can give me, Jesus, better than yourself. Aquinas got that. The second story about Aquinas goes that he was working at Summa Theologiae, one of the most influential works in all of Western uh, literature. Left undone. Aquinas didn't finish it. One of the most brilliant works in all of Western literature left undone because on December 6, 1273, he stopped writing. What are you doing? His friend came up to him and said, why would you stop such a great work? And he said, I can write no more. He thought Aquinas was probably mentally ill. He was probably overwhelmed by the burden of work. He asked him again, and Aquinas responded, I can write no more. All I have written to me seems nothing but straw to what has been revealed to me. Aquinas had gotten a glimpse of eternity in heaven where he realized that all his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he said, I can never write again. He had caught a glimpse of something so beautiful that in comparison, one of the great works in all of Western liturgy started to look like straw. What could do that? What could make everything look like straw? It has to be the beauty of God. I tell you these stories because they are helpful to us as our, on our discipleship journey. And I say we're, we, we take a path as disciples because this does not happen overnight. We do not overnight start to long, start to say what David says or Aquinas says. We are on a journey. It takes discipline. It takes time. But as disciples of Jesus, here's how we know we're on the right track. When God becomes increasingly beautiful to us. Is God beautiful to you? When you find yourself catching glimpses, maybe it's just a glimpse of God that makes everything else look like straw. Good things look like straw. Fears look like straw. Nature, as beautiful it is, looks like straw because it's insufficient. Right? All these forms of beauty, we soak them up, we look at them, but we're never fully satisfied because they're always pointing to something beyond themselves. They're always pointing to the source of beauty, God. God is the beauty we seek. Secondly, we know we're on the right track as disciples when, like David and Aquinas, we find ourselves wanting God more than we want something from God. Yes, we continue to go to God for our needs, absolutely. But the one thing we seek, the one thing we desire is not something from God, but God himself, his presence. You know why? That's where we're going. Where does this big, where does God's story end? It ends in the new heavens and the new earth. It ends in the new Jerusalem. It ends in the new creation. That is where things are going. If we look in the book of Revelation, where John tells us what is coming, guess what he says? He sees a lot, but he doesn't see one thing. He doesn't see a temple. Why doesn't John see a temple in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem? Because he says there's no need for a temple. God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We are headed to the presence of God. There's not going to be a need for a temple because the whole new heavens and new earth will be filled with the presence of God. And there's something else that John doesn't see either. He doesn't see a sun or a moon. Why doesn't John see a sun or a moon? Because there's no need for it. Because John says God is the one that gives light. You and I are on a journey 
to God because God can give us nothing better than himself. And the more we begin to live in that reality now, the more we seek God's presence now, the more we allow ourselves to gaze at the beauty of God, guess what? The more our fears are going to shrivel up because true light has been shown upon them. They've been exposed for what they are. They're small. They can't ultimately harm us. And then we can join with David in saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? No one. Let's pray. God, if I have one thing to ask for us, it's that may we as a congregation may seek to be in the presence of God, to gaze at your beauty. Lord, let that be the one thing that drives our life. Let us want nothing more than you. Let us realize, Lord, that you can give us nothing better than yourself. Lord, I just ask for each person here that you would give them glimpses of your beauty. God, you are a beautiful God, and you revealed that beauty through the beauty of your Son. Thank you for Jesus Christ. May we be in awe of Jesus. May we be in awe of his beauty and his life. And may it give us a taste, Lord, of what is coming. And we will fully be with you in the new heavens and new earth. That's us all in Jesus' name. Amen.